If you'll turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 65, Isaiah the 65th chapter, for the remaining time I want to talk to you about Christ as the pursuer, Christ as the pursuer. We've seen different pictures of Christ throughout the last few years of preaching. I don't know if you recall, we talked about Christ as the consuming fire, the fire that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and we we talked about how Christ appeared as the captain of the Lord's host to Joshua. Uh, We talked about how Christ appeared as the wrestler who wrestled Jacob all night long. Christ appeared as the fourth man in the fire to the Hebrew children who were cast into the fire. The Lord Jesus Christ, as C.S. Lewis put it in regard to Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan being a picture of Christ in those, that great work, he says he's not a tame lion. He can appear as he chooses and demonstrate himself and manifest himself in ways that are shocking, but he will never violate his character in the way that he appears. Sometimes he might be a disciplinarian as a father would discipline his children. Sometimes he may be like a loving, nurturing uh, parent who is taking care of a wounded child. But make no mistake, he can appear as he chooses to appear. And when he came to this earth, he appeared in flesh. That was the most shocking appearance that God, that Christ had ever made. It shocked them. It turned off the legalists, the Pharisees, and the true Christ will turn off the legalists, the Pharisee who thinks that they control or have some input into their salvation because the Lord will have none other glory other than to himself when it comes to our salvation. So we want to talk about Christ as the pursuer. And let's read Isaiah, the 65th chapter. We're going to read the first five verses. This is the Lord talking. I am sought of them that asked not for me. That's strange and mysterious and sort of ironic, is it not? I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provoked me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick. This is a reference to false god worship. Which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh, which was a violation of the Mosaic law, and broth of abominable things is in their vessels, which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. The primary application of what he's putting before us here in the book of Isaiah has to do with the rebellion of the nation of Israel. But you can certainly see how those principles apply to us as disciples, as children of God, because we have a rebellious nature. You know, when the Lord borns us again, when he gives us spiritual life, it doesn't mean that our sinful nature is gone. It's, it's, that's when the fight begins for the child of God. Whenever the Lord divides the heart of the child of God and touches it by His grace, there is created a a new life inside that, a new creation. A piece of God is placed in that heart, and there is conflict. And here, notice it says, I am sought of them that ask not for me. That's very strange. Here are people that found God who were not looking for God. 
Here are people that were not seeking God and yet they found God. How does that work? It works like this. They weren't pursuing God, but God was pursuing them. That's how it works. To be found of them that asked not for me. Nobody was asking for God in this circumstance. And nobody was seeking God. So he goes as the pursuer and he finds them. And look at the condition that he finds them in. Turn over to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter. This is a picture of what we are in our depravity. Now, I want you to think about Christ as the pursuer as you're turning to Ezekiel 16. And don't miss this because this is the picture of a husband pursuing his bride. I want you to think about it in terms of a young man seeking, pursuing a young lady to find a spouse. I know y'all tired of all my boring stories, but it's all I got. But from the moment in 1996, I mean, literally from the moment that I locked eyes with Sister Tracy, I went into pursuit mode. Pursuit mode kicked in with me. I am going to pursue this young lady. There was something in her eyes that the Holy Spirit testified to my heart and the Holy Spirit testified to her heart. And I said, I'm going to pursue this young woman. I was in pursuit mode. I want you to understand that Christ as the pursuer is the image or the example of a husband pursuing his future spouse. I saw Sister Tracy and I said, I'm going to pursue her. Nothing else matters anymore. No other person matters. I'm in pursuit mode and I will not be satisfied until she is mine. From that moment, I did everything that I possibly could to take her off the market. I don't want anybody else to think they've got a chance with her. I was in pursuit mode. I asked her to go eat. I asked her to go to the farm. I asked her. It was just a pursuit mode. And in a much greater way, that's what you have here with the picture of Christ. Now, I give you that example of Sister Tracy and myself because it was very easy to pursue her because she's beautiful. She's still beautiful. But it's not that case with Christ pursuing. It wasn't the case like, you see somebody and they meet all of your spiritual idea of someone and you want to pursue them. There is nothing attractive about the bride of Christ when he begins to pursue the bride. And that's what you got in Ezekiel 16. It is actually awful. So it's, Christ is in pursuit mode. He is the pursuer. But it's not the same as when you fall in love and you're pursuing someone and they reciprocate and all of that. We've got to be drawn to the Lord because we would not come to Him unless He drew us. So look at Ezekiel 16. Let's begin reading in verse 4. And as for thy nativity, and He's talking about Israel, and it's a picture of us in our depravity without God. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. This is a, a picture of a cast out child, infant, a baby that has just been born. Listen to how horrible this is. And ask yourself, is there anything attractive here that would, would make someone say, well, this will be a great future bride right here. He says, thy navel was not cut. Neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou was not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Salt in those days was used as a purifier. It was a medical use for salt. And it, we, we're used to salt being put on food to make it taste savory. It, uh, salt had a, a medical element to it that would purify and get rid of germs. And so they would rub the babies in salt to help purify them and cleanse them of germs and prevent germs from the open air to get up, getting on these babies. 
And so he says, you weren't even salted. Somebody just cast you out in the field and you were not swaddled. None I pitied thee. You think about the society that would, would be in place to walk past this baby that's just been born without its umbilical cord cut and cast out into the field. And there's people passing by. What kind of society is that that would walk past that and do nothing to help? None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou was cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person. That means disgust. In the day that thou was born. This is a terrible picture that's given here. So can you imagine? I told you about how I locked eyes with Sister Tracy and I went into pursuit mode. Could you imagine walking by this pitiful, bloody scene of an infant cast out, that having just been born, and then looking at that situation with a baby that, that can't even see, the blinding sun coming down upon this infant, and say, well, you know, well, there's a good potential spouse. That doesn't make any sense, does it? This is a picture of what we look like in our sins without God doing something for us. Nobody wants to have anything to do with us. And the Lord comes along and in his mercy, look at what he says. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. You see, this baby is dead. You get that? It's dead. It's not breathing. It's expired. And it's just been cast out, not even buried, not even having the decency of buried. And by the way, you say, well, that, that's just a, that, that image, that, can ne- that reality can never happen. That's exactly what the heathen nations were doing. They would just sacrifice and toss out, you know, babies that were maybe maimed or babies that didn't look like they were going to be healthy. They just toss them out in the field and let them expire. The buzzards would eat them. Isn't that terrible? That's the type of nation that the Lord drove out from the promised land whenever he had his people come and occupy the promised land. That's what they were doing, and and much worse than that even. And the Lord comes along, and in mercy, he looks upon this situation. This is the the heart of God that loves you. This is the kind of God, this is the God that, that you serve and that you know. And I hope you know him better in seeing what he does here. He looks upon this terrible circumstance, this this loathed baby that is dead. And when he sees it, unlike everybody else that's just passing by, he looks at this baby laying polluted in its own blood, and he says, live. Live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. (laughs) What mercy. He says, I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased in wax and great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Who in the world but the, the heart of God, God himself would pursue something like this. And yet that's what he did with us. He pursued us when we were polluted in our own blood, in Adam's blood. We were polluted by the genetics and by our ancestor Adam, and yet he looked upon you as a child of his and said, live. It polluted in your own blood. That's mercy. And it goes on to say, I have caused thee to multiply. In verse 8, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, watch this, Behold, thy time was the time of love. You want to know what motivated the Lord to do that? To say, live to this pitiful situation. It was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee. You say, what in the world does that mean? You remember in the days of 
Ruth and Boaz, whenever Ruth went down to the, to the floor, the threshing floor, Naomi had sent her down there, which was a little odd and a little different. But when Boaz went to sleep, she went and slept at his feet and, and she took the, the hem of his blanket and pulled it over her. And when he woke up, he was shocked. This was a shocking thing. It was a very unusual thing to force this issue. In that circumstance, a rare circumstance, you have, in a sense, the future wife as the pursuer. And so she spreads his skirt over her and he wakes up and he says, who is there? It's dark. She says, I'm Ruth. Spread thy skirt over me, for thou art a near kinsman. You see, the spreading of the skirt over an individual was an indication, I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to take care of them. And of course, you know what happened there. Whenever Ruth triggered that, suddenly she's not the pursuer anymore. (laughs) She becomes the pursued. Here Christ says, I spread my skirt over thee. He says, I'm going to make you into something that you would not have been if I had not come along. And that's the child of God, is it not? Because He pursues you, He makes you into something that you would not have been. When I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee. Now you think that was a one-sided covenant? I mean, what could that just revived baby say? Goo goo gaga? Hey, I want to make a covenant with you. Can't even speak. Can't even respond. So the Lord makes a one-sided covenant of which the baby, of which this infant is the beneficiary. You see, and that's your salvation, child of God. It's a one-sided covenant. If God made a covenant that was conditional upon you doing something to get in it, you would fail every time. And somebody says, yeah, but Brother Tim, I love the Lord. Why do you love the Lord? We love Him. John said, the apostle of love said, we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. He is the pursuer. We are the pursued. He says, I swear unto thee, entered a covenant with thee, and then I washed thee with water. Can you picture the Lord coming down off of the path that he was on here and the beautiful imagery that's given here while everybody else was just passing by and going, ooh, that's nasty. Oh, oh, I can't even look at that. The Lord comes off of the path and goes into the field and gets his hands bloodied and picks up this baby and cuts the umbilical cord and washes the baby with water and with salt and he takes care of it and he swaddles and he puts it in his arm. Is that not a beautiful picture? Oh, I've swaddled and held five of our babies. You know, they're, they're not babies anymore. But what a, what a blessing it is. And the Lord takes this pitiful, awful situation and He turns that He's the Redeemer. He's the overcomer. He's, because He's the pursuer, He can do that. You see? And He takes that baby and He washes it Clothes it with broidered work, shod thee with badger skin. I girded thee about with fine linen. I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments. And I put bra- the Lord's having fun here. Y'all, y'all see that? He's celebrating the life of this baby from which he's given life to. He's the pursuer. I put bracelets on thy hands, a chain upon thy neck, a jewel on thy forehead, earrings in thy ears, a beautiful crown upon thy head. He is, he is decorating his future bride. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful. And thou didst prosper into a kingdom. Now watch this. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. But watch this now. For the beauty, it was perfect through my comeliness. Y'all see that? He said, the beauty of my bride 
is perfected through my beauty, my comeliness. You see that? So lest we should think, well, I'm just a pretty good person. I've just got it all going on and it's all about me. No, the, the beauty that you have, the comeliness that you have is because the Lord has imposed His beauty, His comeliness upon you. How? Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has imputed His beauty onto you. So therefore, you are glorious and you are beautiful. But don't ever forget where that beauty and that glory comes from. It is God's beauty and it is God's glory. You go on and read about what happens here as this baby grows up and becomes the bride of, of the Lord here. She forgets. That's what we're prone to do, aren't we? She forgets that He pursued her. She forgets what she was polluted in Adam's blood. She forgets where, where she was and what He did for her. And she wanders away. And, he's, and she's compared later in the chapter to an unfaithful wife who would go off and commit adultery on the husband because she forgot what the husband had done for her. She forgot how he had decked her and made her beautiful. She thought her loveliness was tied up within herself. And her loveliness was tied up in her Lord. Don't ever forget that child of God. He is the pursuer. In Revelation, the 19th chapter, you have a reference to the ultimate end of that pursuer, where in Revelation 19, he describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says in Revelation 19, Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. You know how the wife of God, the bride of Christ, which is you, child of God, you know how she made herself ready? It's because he made her ready. See, he prepared her so that she could be in heaven one day and all of God's children are part of that bride. All of the chosen children of God that were known in the covenant before the foundation of the world. And it would be a shame if any one of those was missing. And there will be none missing. Why? Because of the pursuer. Because of the pursuer. Are we pursuing Him? Are we pursuing and chasing Jesus? Let me just give a little bit of practical teaching on pursuing. Because I think that one of the things that we're missing in our generation, in the younger generation, is the idea, the understanding of what it means to pursue. Especially with young men. What does it mean to pursue? Jesus is the ultimate example. And praise God, unlike Jesus' situation, you know, where there was nothing attractive about his bride. He had to make her attractive and put his comeliness, his, his beauty upon her so she could be beautiful. It's not that case when it comes to a young man pursuing a young woman. But I want you to see very clearly that Jesus Christ, he made his intentions clear, did he not? He made his intentions clear when he was pursuing his bride. John the 6th chapter where he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. He's making clear his intentions as the pursuer. He says, I'm going to get my bride. She will not miss out. She will not be left behind. No piece of her or part of my bride will be left out. I'm going to get every bit of her. Not just, you know, her head, not just her foot, but her whole body. I'm going to have her with me in heaven. She's going to be with me. And child of God, that bride, that wife is you. It's you. There's not going to be one of his children missing. So Christ made his intentions clear. That is something for a young man to understand in this day of social media, 
TikTok, Instagram, and texting. If you pursue a young woman, make your intentions clear. I'm telling you, you really can't do that with one of these. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't send you a text and said, hey, what you doing? What's up? What's going on? You know, I've had the question asked of me, Daddy, you know, what, one of my girls, you know, what does this mean? And I look at it and I read it and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it means. I can't tell from this text. I can't tell from this. You know, I've told y'all before about how I had, I practiced before I called the first girl that I was ever interested in pursuing in high school. I was probably, what, 15 years old. And I practiced. <laughs> I even wrote down what I was going to say. And it was very, very pitiful. You know, like, it was a beautiful day today. I said, I hope you had a good day today. How's school going? What teachers do you have? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I sounded like a robot, you know. I was so nervous. But when I called and I had the guts and the courage to pluck up the courage to make that call to that young woman, young girl, she knew my intentions. Why is he calling me? I was intentionally pursuing her. Y'all see that? You can't get that out of a text. In the world that we live in today, when a guy starts texting a girl, young ladies, you don't know how many other girls he's texting. You know? He may be saying the same thing to all these other, but if you get him on the phone and you talk to him, it's kind of hard to talk to four or five people at one time, isn't it? You see that personal communication? You can't get that in the text world. You can't get that. It doesn't make the intentions clear. So this has kind of been my default. It, one of my girls shows me a text. And, what do you think this means? Well, I, I'll say, well, it certainly means that he's not pursuing you <laughs> because you can't figure out what it means. Whenever I pursued Sister Tracy, she was probably sick of hearing from me. You know, I, you know this is too late. I can't go see a movie at this time of night. You know, I, I, how in the world do you have all this energy? I, I, I had a zeal to pursue her. But if you can't figure that out, young ladies, then you just mark him off. Just mark him off. If you, want to, if you want to talk to me, you know, do like the Hallmark Channel. Meet me at the coffee shop. <laughs> you know, you realize how the Hallmark Channel would go out of business just like that if they put a movie out there of the modern texting world. That'd be so boring, wouldn't it? Why do you think a coffee shop is in every Hallmark Channel movie? Because people have to come together and see each other face to face and interact. And they pursue each other. Do you get that? Am I just, am I crazy? I guess I am. If you're going to pursue a young woman, make the intentions clear. That's what Christ did. Don't play around with texting and, and, and mealy mouth and, you know, that doesn't make anything clear. Make it clear. Young men, we're missing that type of manliness in this particular age. Make your intentions clear. Here's why. Number one, you want to make your intentions clear to that young woman because you don't want to lead her on and make her think, well, what's going on here? She's got more to do than worry about what that young man is trying to do or not do, you see? Make the intentions clear. And if she, you know, sometimes on, on rare occasion, you know, I have actually answered a text or two, you know, from a young man who <laughs> came to one of my girls and I think from here on out, I'm going to kind of put a rule on myself that whenever we wonder, you know, what are the intentions of this young man? I think I'm going to take the phone over from the girls and just state in the text, do you like me? <laughs> do you want to marry me? <laughs> that would go over like a lead balloon with the girls, of course. I would not do that. But part of me is tempted to say, you know, what are your intentions here? <laughs> 
Because I don't know how many other young women that that young man is talking to and pursuing in different ways. I tell you, this, this social media world, media world, this text world, is just, it's confusing, is it not? It's confusing. It confuses me. It confuses you. It confuses a young woman. It confuses a young man. A poor young man might not even know, well, which one of these six or seven that I'm texting all the time, which one do I like? <laughs> you see? It is not the picture of Christ pursuing His bride. You see that? So make your intentions clear. Okay, as we close here, i got a, about a couple minutes left. Did Jacob make his intentions clear with Rachel? Y'all remember that? Jacob has to run from home because his brother's trying to kill him. And so he comes to the well out there in the middle of nowhere, and he's thirsty, and all these sheep herders show up, you know, and he says, hey, do you know my cousin that lives over here? I'm supposed to live with them for a while. Of course, they didn't know he was coming. And they said, yeah, we know him. Here comes his daughter, Rachel. And so here comes Rachel, and none of the men were manly enough or considerate enough to roll the stone away to, to water the sheep that Rachel brought. But old Jacob, you know, he mans up. He wasn't, you know, he, I don't know if he used superhuman strength or just a lot of adrenaline, but he manned up and he moved the stone off of the well. And here comes Rachel and they began to feed the, the sheep and water the sheep. And then right, he goes to Rachel and he says, you know, are you Laban's daughter? And she's like, yes. And, you know, he takes her and he kisses her. <laughs> For, you know, you ever heard of love at first sight? Well, that was just weird at first sight right there, you know. But he made his intentions clear, didn't he? I'm not saying that's appropriate in every situation. Don't think it's appropriate in every situation because Jacob had to wait seven years, maybe 14 years before he got to kiss her again. But he made his intentions clear. It says he goes up to her and he, and he says, are you Rachel Laban's daughter? And she says, yes. And he kisses her and then he weeps. Man, this guy seems like a nut, doesn't he? He's weeping. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh. You know, I mean, I'm sure Rachel was thinking, I got to get away from this weirdo. But did he make his intentions clear? I think he made it very clear. Has Christ made his intentions clear to you? Do you believe that he is the Son of God and do you believe that he paid for your sins? I'm telling you, he as the pursuer has made his intentions clear to your heart because he's written it in your heart. And it's a glorious thing to be pursued and caught and captivated by the Lord. And I'm not just picking on our young men, but it does seem to be quite an issue today in making intentions clear. We should make our intentions clear that we are in turn pursuing the Lord. You get that? The Lord has pursued you across mountain and valley. He's pursued you into the depths of the judgment of God to purchase you and get you and make you into something that you are not and turn you into His bride. He went to all that trouble. It would seem like a very little thing just to get up and walk down the aisle and be baptized. He's not asking you to pay for your sins. He's not asking you to even present yourself in your comeliness and your beauty. He's just saying, rest in my beauty. Rest in my salvation. Rest in my pursuing you. If there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord, we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.